Please turn in your Bibles now to Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel 13 is like chapter 12 in that it is about prophecy, but chapter 12 was focused on how God's people receive prophecy. Chapter 13 speaks to those who do the work of prophesying, but who are not called by God to do that. It speaks to false prophets. So let's listen to God's word, Ezekiel chapter 13. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirits and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying, The Lord declares, when the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. Did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you said, The Lord declares, but it is not I who have spoken? Therefore thus says the Lord God, Because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, therefore behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord God. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. So tell those who plaster it over with whitewash that it will fall. A flooding rain will come, and you, O hailstones, will fall, and a violent wind will break out. Behold, when the wall has fallen, will you not be asked, Where is the plaster with which you plastered it? Therefore thus says the Lord God, I will make a violent wind break out in my wrath. There will also be in my anger a flooding rain and hailstones to consume it in wrath. So I will tear down the wall which you plastered over with whitewash, and bring it down to the ground, so that its foundation is laid bare. And when it falls, you will be consumed in its midst, and you will know that I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it over with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is gone, and its plasterers are gone along with the prophets of Israel who prophesy to Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, declares the Lord God. Now you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who are prophesying from their own inspiration. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic bands on all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature to hunt down lives. Will you hunt down the lives of my people, but preserve the lives of others for yourselves? For handfuls of barley and fragments of bread, you have profaned me to my people, to put to death some who should not die, 
and to keep others alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands by which you hunt lives as birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let them go, even those lives whom you hunt as birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people from your hands, and they will no longer be in your hands to be hunted, and you will know that I am the Lord. Because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life. Therefore, you women will no longer see false visions or practice divination, and I will deliver my people out of your hand. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. A cancer center nearby advertises itself by saying this, Your cancer journey begins with a second opinion. It's a good line, I think. Because they know that you know that your choice about cancer treatment may be a life or death choice. And you are going to want to do everything you can to have the right doctor. Well, this is a passage that has that kind of seriousness to it, and in fact, even more. It's a passage about the day of the Lord that is coming, a day of judgment that is coming. What is at stake is not just the rest of this life. What is at stake is eternity, and a doctor can't help with this. You're going to want to do everything you can to have the right profit. That's what you will need. But are you prepared to evaluate the prophets? Are you prepared to filter the voices that say, thus says the Lord, and to know which ones are telling the truth and which ones are lying to you? Well, this passage is designed to give clarity about that question. It is to help you consider who you listen to and to the degree that you may have a role in telling others the word of God, considering how you do that and what you say. And the basic good news of this passage is that the false prophets don't win. Yes, they are deceptive. Yes, they are harmful and cunning. In the end, they will be judged. They will be revealed for what they are. And God's people will know that he is the Lord. And so we'll study... Here, a false prophet and what a false prophet is like under three headings. First, a false prophet's heart. A false prophet's heart. This chapter has two parts, as you saw as I read. It speaks to men who are false prophets, and then it speaks to the women who are false prophets. And so we're going to consider under each point as we go through both the men and the women in turn. So we will jump around a little bit in the passage uh, as as we go through. But verse 2 gives us, The basic issue in the heart. Verse 2, these prophets are prophesying, and they prophesy from their own inspiration. That's the first problem with a false prophet's heart. It has the wrong source for their prophecy. The source of prophecy is not from God. The source is from themselves. And so they make a fundamental mistake, and in fact, it's a blasphemous mistake. They are ascribing to God something which is not from God, and they are dishonoring 
God's name. So there's the wrong source. Next, verse 3 says, they are following their own spirit. They have the wrong source and they have the wrong purpose. They are not prophesying because the Spirit of God is leading them to prophesy. They are prophesying because their own spirit is leading them to do this. This is something that they have designed and intended for their own purposes. And so once again, they are dishonoring God, dishonoring God's holy purposes. At this point, God calls them foolish prophets who are following their own spirit. The problem is not only that this is an offense against God, it is certainly that. It is also an abuse of their own minds. They are not doing what they are capable of intellectually. They are trapping themselves in their own folly, and so they are foolish prophets. So the wrong source, the wrong purpose. Verse 3 also tells us they are deluded. The false prophet is deceived in their own heart. They say they have seen something, they have something to say, but God says the reality is they have seen nothing. Verse 6 returns to this theme. If you jump down to verse 6, it says, They see falsehood and lying divination, who are saying the Lord declares. When the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. And so this deception appears to go very deep. It, it's, it's saying that there is a sense in which you might call these false prophets sincere people. They are prophesying something, and they are not just saying it, even though they know it's not true, which sometimes people do certainly do that. But these false prophets, God points out, they are saying this, and they are putting their own personal hope in what they are saying. They really believe it will happen. And so their deception goes very deep. And as we think about ourselves and as we think about application, we'll come back to this question because, of course, I think this is one of the scariest ideas we can have. How, what, if, what if I'm deceiving myself? How do I get out of that trap? So we'll consider that in a moment, but we need to look at one more characteristic from false prophets, this time turning to the women. If you jump down to verse 17, there's one more thing about the heart of a false prophet that we see. Verses 17 and then verse 19. Verse 17 has the same basic issue. Son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who are prophesying from their own inspiration. Same, same statement as about the men, about the women. There's the wrong source. It's coming from themselves. It's not coming from God. But verse 19 then has the new concern which is a wrong motive. It says they do what they do for handfuls of barley and fragments of bread. They prophesy for the payment. And again, the foolishness of false prophecy is on display here and the degradation of false prophecy because the Word of God is precious. The Word of God is is more precious than anything we have in this world. It is the only hope we can have for eternal life and for salvation. But when you exchange the Word of God for the ideas of a man or a woman, it becomes a very cheap thing. Look at how cheap prophecy is. You could never get a qualified cancer doctor at this price, but you can get prophecy that has life and death in the balance at this price. Not even a full meal, just handfuls of barley, just fragments of bread. 
And this is what happens to people. When we put ourselves in the place of God, when we take God who is of infinite worth and try to diminish him, we end up in ourselves becoming worthless and treating him as if he was worthless. Consider our Savior, sold for a sum of money that was then used to buy an unwanted field. Cheapening of God himself and a blasphemy against him. And so the heart of a false prophet is fatally flawed. The heart of a false prophet has the source of itself, a purpose that comes from itself, a motivation that is, that is selfish and petty. And in all of this, the false prophet is deceived. The false prophet is living in a lie. Now, as we consider the application of this, I do want to encourage us to use these characteristics to examine our own hearts. The reason is not that I think this is a room full of false prophets, but the reason is that examination of the heart is something that God especially calls us to do for ourselves. And while we may not have the fully grown fruit of these false prophets, We should consider whether the roots can exist in our own hearts, whether we can have these sorts of characteristics. We should consider, though of course we are not all prophets, that we do have the responsibility to handle God's word in the ways that he's appointed and to watch ourselves. And of course we who are elders should especially consider these things with our formal responsibility before God to teach his word. So ask your own heart about the source, the truths that you believe are the truths of God. Where do they come from? Do they come from God as as presented in his scripture or the ideas that have come from your own mind? Think about your purpose. When you tell someone what God has said, when you give someone some advice that you consider to be good advice or perhaps godly advice, Do you have God's interests in mind? Do you do this because you love him and you love others, not merely because you love your own advice? And think about your motives. Do you have a stake? Do you have something that you can gain for yourself by being a person familiar with the word of God? And consider the question of deception. Are you self-deceived? Again, this is perhaps the hardest one. If you are, how do you get out of the trap? Well, if we go back to verse 6, it leads us in the right direction. Verse 6 tells us what they are doing. They they are hoping for the fulfillment of their word. But then verse 7 simply says to these false prophets, Did you not see a false vision? And speak a lying divination when you said, The Lord declares, but it is not I who have spoken. God reminds his people that he has spoken. And in fact, the way out of self-deception, the antidote, is to consider not just what I think God has to say, but what I know God has already said. To remember, I am not first in the line of people who are interested in knowing the word of God and knowing the will of God, that God has a a line of prophets 
that he has already sent. In Ezekiel's day, it was really a very simple thing that they needed to do. They needed to read Moses. They needed to read that prophet that God had sent, that he had called in a special way, in a miraculous way, that he had done wonders and signs and miracles, that he had spoken from heaven uh, to the people of God, that he had given the written word of God many things to confirm this man as a true prophet. This is what these Israelite prophets needed to do. They just needed to read Moses. In fact, Ezekiel and other prophets were doing this. We've already seen this in Ezekiel. We read these curses that God says is going to come on his people, and we can go read the same things in the book of Leviticus. Because God is simply fulfilling his covenant. Of course, today we have not only Moses, but we have the prophets, we have the New Testament. The teaching of Jesus Christ himself come in the flesh, the Son of God. So how do you examine yourself to know if you are self-deceived? You check what you believe with what the scriptures teach. You immerse yourself in this written word of God and you study it and you know it and you, you learn it and you believe it and you obey it. You humble yourself so that it can correct you and teach you. And that is the pathway to knowing the truth and to examining the heart. So this is what a false prophet's heart is like. The next thing God shows us in this passage is a false prophet's fruit. A false prophet's fruit. The things that grow up uh, in the prophet's work. Three things under this heading. First, a false prophet's fruit is that a false prophet leaves God's people vulnerable to judgment. A false prophet will leave God's people vulnerable to judgment. Go back to verses 4 and 5. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. And so God pictures his people. You're like a city that has gaps in its walls. Of course, this is an appropriate image because in a few short years, God has promised this is exactly what Jerusalem will be. But God is saying it's already true. You're already like this. It's it's the spiritual reality of of you because you, you are compromised in idolatry and sin and corruption. And so what do God's people need? They need someone to call them back. They need someone who can stand in the gap in the wall. They need someone who can protect them from the wrath of God that will fall on those who practice wickedness. This is a a fundamental part of a prophet's role. Think of Ezekiel's commission. He was called to be a watchman. He can't save the people, but he can tell them the truth. God is the one who saves, but Ezekiel as the prophet can call the people to repent. What does a false prophet look like? What is the fruit of a false prophet? Well, it's like a fox running around in the ruins. He's not going to stand in the way of anything. He'll, he'll wander around and accomplish nothing. He won't rebuild anything. He won't protect anyone. And so God's people are vulnerable to judgment. Second thing, and this is, is in a way the, same, the other side of the same coin, a false prophet offers... God's people, false security. False security. Verses 10 and 11. God explains the judgment is because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash 
So tell those who plaster it over with whitewash that it will fall. A flooding rain will come, and you, O hailstones, will fall, and a violent wind will break out. Notice how the false prophets imitate the work of a true prophet. The false prophets appear to be standing in the gap. They appear to be building a wall that will protect the people. They appear to be keeping judgment away and offering the peace of God to the people of God. In fact, their work is beautiful. They've covered this wall in whitewash so that you can't see anything wrong with it. But it's not a real wall. God says that when judgment comes like a, like a violent thunderstorm, the structure will show itself for what it is. It is a false security. It is useless in the face of the storm. False prophets leave God's people vulnerable on the one hand, and on the other hand, they are at the same time saying, here is security. The men are doing this by, by proclaiming publicly this message of peace. The women have a different approach, but they are doing the same thing, offering false security. It's described in verse 18. It says, Woe to the women who sew magic bands on all wrists and make veils for the heads of every person of every stature to hunt down lives. Now, we don't know exactly what these women were making or exactly what they were doing, but the, the big idea seems clear enough. It seems to be the, the ancient equivalent of the good luck charm or the rabbit's foot or something like that. Uh, they are offering protection. They are, they are using people's natural superstitions and desire to have something tangible and close that can comfort them. And so the women, instead of standing up and preaching, they are, they are sewing these magic bands and handing them out or selling them. It's all part of the same work, though, of offering false security, of trusting in something other than God to save you. So the false prophets are leaving God's people vulnerable. They are offering false security. And then third, they are encouraging wickedness and discouraging righteousness. Verse 18 introduces this theme. They are hunting down lives. Will you hunt down the lives of my people, but preserve the lives of others for yourselves? Verse 22 develops the idea. Because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life, Therefore, you women will no longer see false visions or practice divinations, and I will deliver my people out of your hand. Their work, both the public work perhaps that the men are doing or the the quiet, more subtle work that the women are doing, uh, the things that they are whispering in the ears of God's people are turning things upside down. It seems much more natural and appropriate to continue to sin. That's the safe way to go. And if you want to try to do the right thing, well, there's no encouragement for that. You'll be mocked or scorned. And so right and wrong are turned upside down, and the cost, again, is human life as people believe lies and turn away from the Lord. This is the fruit 
of a false prophet. And this is the sort of thing that Jesus especially has instructed us to consider. I want us to listen to his words about false prophets. As I mentioned earlier, we don't have so much ability to see the heart. Sometimes you can see the heart, but Jesus tells us especially consider the fruit. Matthew 7, verse 15 to 20. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. And so this is our responsibility. We are to consider those who proclaim, thus says the Lord, those who speak for God and evaluate their fruit. What is the fruit of the preachers and teachers that you listen to? Do they warn you about sin? Or do they flatter you about yourself? Leaving you vulnerable to God's judgment? What kind of security are you offered? On what terms can a person have peace with God? Yes, the gospel message is peace with God. But that comes God's appointed way. It comes through Jesus Christ. The cost of peace is his blood shed for the sins of his people. The way of peace is through him alone. He says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Consider what is encouraged and what is discouraged. Is righteousness encouraged? Is it hard to be righteous and easy to sin when you listen to this false prophet? Or is it a true prophet who will encourage you to walk the narrow path? Of course, that evaluation should begin in this church. It should begin with me, with Pastor Joe, with the elders of this church. It should extend to the broader Christian community. Now, this is something we have to think about in our context because we have access, basically instant access, to just about any teacher we want to listen to. Uh, it's, it's very easy now uh, to listen to lots of different voices. And so it's something we need to think about as we examine fruit, as we listen to the voices of those who teach the Word of God. How do we want to do this? And I'd say the, the goal is to find a balance. On the one hand, uh, please do listen to voices outside of this church. Uh, please do consider that this is not the micro-kingdom of God and that we have a monopoly on the Word of God in this place or anything like that. In fact, we try to build it into our DNA as Presbyterians, that, that we are part of something bigger that is happening, uh, that, that there are other faithful preachers and teachers that we, we listen to and we submit to together within our denomination and beyond our denomination. We share pulpits with one another and things like this uh, because we don't have a monopoly on the Word of God by any means. So it's important to look beyond the local church. That's a good and a right thing to do, a healthy thing to do for Christians. At the same time, we need to ask, how do you examine fruit? 
because there is a blessing and a benefit and an importance to the local teaching in that you have direct access to do this work of examination. And as we think about how things work online, you know that it is very easy to create a platform. It is very easy to cultivate an image, to produce teaching, even accurate teaching, and still cut yourself off from examination. And it has become much too common, including among Reformed Christians, for us to listen to and admire teachers for years, only to discover later on this person has now resigned. This person has now been asked to leave. Sometimes it turns out that the evidence that something was rotten had been there for a while, but only after a while did it become public. And it's kept secret from those of us who are listening in the broader public. And so what, what do we do? Again, we, have, we seek a balance. Um, there's nothing wrong with a preacher or a teacher having a public platform. Uh, I listen to men who have public platforms. I read their books and things like this. But be careful if you cannot see the fruit for yourself. Do you know that others are able to see the fruit? Can you examine And considering the difficulty of doing that from a distance, remember the importance and the safety of the local church. This is the place where you can really know. Of course, even in, I'm not saying in a local church that things can't still go wrong, but this is the place where you have the best access to fulfill the obligation to examine fruit, to know those who speak the word of God. So we've looked at the false prophet's heart, and then we've thought about the false prophet's fruit. The final thing this passage points us to consider is the false prophet's punishment. False prophet's punishment. The summary of the punishment is in verse 8. Therefore thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, therefore behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. And that's a very sobering statement. We have a, an encouraging verse in the New Testament we often remind ourselves of. If, if God is for us, who can be against us? But if God is against you, who can be for you? What hope could you possibly have in the face of the wrath of God when God says that he is against you? And so God describes three ways that his wrath comes against false prophets. Verse 9, God says he removes them from his people. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord God. God says he will remove them not only from the place of influence, not only from being in the council, from those who are are giving advice and, and directing the nation. He says they won't even be registered among the Israelites. If we were to use our current day parallels, we would say it's not just that they can't be elders anymore, it's that they will not be members of the church. That is the punishment God describes. Ezekiel in his day, frames this in in the context of the exile and the return that is happening. God has told his people, you will be punished, you will be exiled as a people, and then there will be a coming back. But when that return happens, God says, end of verse 9, they will not enter the land of Israel. 
And we can see a, a specific application that would have been true in that time. In Ezekiel's day, the false prophets of his day who were then going to be judged and exiled, they would have been gone by the time that the people were coming back. They were not going to return. But we can look through the story of God's people continuing on and see that those were not the last false prophets. Nehemiah comes back to the land. And there are false prophets opposing him. Jesus comes, and he is opposed. The New Testament warns that there will still be false teachers in the church. And so I think as we read verse 9, as we hear God make this promise about what will happen, we can hear the application to Ezekiel's day, but we can also consider how this theme is fulfilled in God's ultimate promises. In the promise of the land, we see the promise ultimately of the new heavens and the new earth that God gives his people. And when God speaks about this, he also talks about these false influences. We skip forward all the way to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. As God speaks about the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 27, God says, Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is a final registry for the people of God when God makes all things new and judges the wicked. And in this final registry, in this final entering of the land, there will be no false prophets. So they are removed from the people. They are also, God says, to be destroyed along with their work that they have done. This is what verses 12 to 16 describe these these walls that they have built, God says the wind and the, the rain and all these things will come against the wall. Verse 14, I will tear down the wall which you plastered over with whitewash and bring it to the ground so that its foundation is laid bare. And when it falls, you will be consumed in its midst. That false security you built up as well as you yourself, all of it is getting destroyed. And you will know that I am the Lord. And so all the lies that the false prophets have told, all of these will be exposed. They will be removed, and the false prophets will suffer God's wrath. Again, the New Testament teaches us along parallel lines of talking about what will happen in the church. Yes, there will be false teachers and false prophets that still come. Second Peter chapter 2. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. But listen to what he concludes about them. He says, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Swift destruction, not that they can't last for a while. A false prophet may endure for a while, at least from our perspective. But when the storm comes... It will be thorough and complete. They will be destroyed. Again, all the way into the book of Revelation, we see this theme carried forward. The fate of a false prophet is so severe that it is associated with the fate of the devil himself. Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
This is the false prophet's punishment. They are destroyed along with their work. And then finally, as they are punished, God says their victims will be rescued from them. This is where the passage ends, verses 20 and 21. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands by which you hunt lives as birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let them go, even those whose lives whom you hunt as birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people from your hands, and they will no longer be in your hands to be hunted. And you will know that I am the Lord. He repeats it in verse 23. I will deliver my people out of your hand. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. One of the reasons a false prophet's punishment is so severe is that a false prophet's influence is so dangerous and affects so many people. They put human lives, human souls in danger with what they do. Of course, these verses do not say that every deceived person will repent, but it is a promise for those who belong to God, who perhaps may be trapped, for those who belong to God, who perhaps may be deceived for a time, that they will be saved. And it is a a special promise, I think, that God makes here at the end, because if if you've been deceived by a false prophet, if you've, if you've started to realize what's happened to you, 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 you realize, I've, I've been a fool. I've been had, I've been taken, I've been manipulated. It's shameful, it's embarrassing. And God says, I know how to pull you out of that. God says, I can rescue you from that. I can deliver you from that shame and from that deception and from those lies. And so in the end... God's declaration of judgment against the false prophets is designed to be a comfort to God's people. It's a sober warning. It's a serious thing. It's something for you to consider your own heart, to consider carefully your teachers and their fruit. It's something for you to understand the severity of the punishment, but also for you to know God has his victory in the end. God knows who his people are, and he is able to rescue them. Perhaps some of you have been caught up to some degree in things like this. Perhaps something that you look back and say, that was foolish. Perhaps you look back and say, I was spreading heresy. If you turn to Jesus, he can rescue you from that. Jesus says he is able to save. Jesus is able to forgive those sins. Jesus is able to restore you. The false prophets don't win in the end. Jesus, the true prophet, he's the one that wins in the end. Jesus, the true prophet, the Son of God who always told the truth, he has his victory over evil. He defeats the lies of the false prophets and of the devil. He fulfills the promises of God. And he protects God's people. And so take heart. Perhaps this has plagued you in the past. Perhaps it troubles you right now. Perhaps this will challenge you in the future. But take heart, because there is hope in looking to Jesus Christ. Listen to him as he speaks his word in the scripture, and believe him and obey him. And he will rescue you from all who are false. 
Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for telling us these things. Things that are disturbing to think about what evil people are capable of, what evil we ourselves could be capable of and are capable of. Things that have happened in the past, things that are going on right now in the church as we look around uh, our, our world. Or things that shake us and make us question ourselves. But we thank you that you have told us the truth. And we thank you for the promise of salvation that you give. That no matter how cunning and deceptive the enemy may be, you know your people. So Lord, help us to turn to you. Lord, give us hearts that can know and discern the truth. Give us eyes to see fruit, to know the difference between the good and the bad fruit. Give us a proper fear of God in in light of the wrath that comes. And draw us to the peace of God that is offered through Jesus Christ, the only true peace in this world. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.